So we were thinking about how culture has got to where it is. I depressed everyone, so you're welcome for that. Um, I'm English, so I like doing that to other people. Um, but it, it helps to, to give us just a sober understanding of some of the, the challenges that we face engaging with the culture in which we find ourselves. And if it sounds challenging and a little bit depressing, let me also say I, I don't want to be a Christian at any other time other than right now. Um, I love that line in, in one of the songs in Hamilton where they're, they're saying, look around, look around, we're so lucky to be alive at a time like this. And that's how I feel living in these times. It's challenging, I think it's going to be harder to be a Christian in the coming years if, if things continue in the way they seem to be. But I also think we have a unique opportunity to show the, the goodness and kindness of Jesus Christ um, in a culture that increasingly will be unfamiliar with it. So I'm excited to be here um, in, in the Western world at this time. Um, God is able. And my very simplistic understanding of church history is that when it gets harder for Christians, it tends to be better for the gospel. When, when Christians lose, the gospel tends to win. And conversely, often when Christians seem to win, it tends to be the gospel that loses. So I, I don't mind feeling as though culture is not, is not going my way. Um, because I think, actually, this is where the gospel really does its thing. So, with that in mind, I want to, to think through um, a couple of things, and some of those things are on a piece of paper over there. So, let me just go and grab that. One moment. <laughs> there we go. So, how do we seek to articulate the gospel in this kind of context? What do we need to do? Um, I've got a few things for us here. I had numbered them, but I've scribbled them out and rewritten them so many times and I have no idea how many it is. But let's pretend it's seven uh, things for us to think about. Um, here's the first thing we need, we need to do. We need to be good listeners. Uh, it's not for nothing that the Bible is full of repeated teaching on being quick to listen and slow to speak. Um, as I mentioned before, coffee, if we are going to love our neighbours, we do need to understand our neighbours. Uh, and a key part of that is, is being a good listener. Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, folly and shame, that, that's a big category you don't want to be in. <laughs> um, and interestingly, to give an answer before he hears is folly and shame. Now, we need to hear that because as, as Bible-believing Christians, we have a very high view of speaking God's word, rightly so. We believe in proclamation. Faith comes by hearing. But sometimes that can make us a little too trigger happy. And sometimes we can, we can maybe hear half a sentence before we start launching into all the things that we think and believe on a given topic. And the proverb is showing us, actually there's wisdom for holding back, listening really well, and then beginning to, to speak into a situation. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says something similar. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. I, I, I love the wisdom of, of the book of Proverbs. Uh, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. In other words, it's not going to be immediately apparent from the surface what is going on with someone else, what their real agenda is, what their real heart issue is. Um, I've often been, been told um, in sort of evangelism training, Answer the questioner, not the question. 
uh, there's often something behind the question that we need to get to. And if we simply deal with the question at a surface level, we will miss the real issue that might be going on under the surface. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, there may be a process there. It may take a few thoughtful questions before we can begin to find out what it is that someone is actually thinking. Um, some of you will know the name John Lennox. He's a, a British scientist, professor of maths at Oxford. Math, sorry, at Oxford. Um, wonderful Christian man. He's got three PhDs. His brain's the size of Jupiter. Um, <laughs> And he was doing an evangelistic talk. I was there um, one lunchtime at Oxford University, room packed full of undergraduate students, and he was doing a talk on suffering. Sorry, no, he was doing a talk on science and faith. That was right. He was doing a talk on science and faith, and he said at the end, I didn't got any questions. And one student asked a very aggressive question about suffering to the effect of how can Christians be ridiculous enough to think that there's a loving God when there's so much suffering? Now, John, again, brain the size of, of Jupiter, John could have, have just crushed that student. As well, actually, here's, here's why that's a ridiculous question. Here are some of the, the things that Christians have believed about suffering for, for centuries. You know, here's what is lacking in your viewpoint on that. But as, as John heard this quite snarky question from a, you know, snotty 19-year-old, he didn't, he didn't fight back with kind of, if you're going to give it like that, I'm going to give it back. He, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he asked something that just drew a little bit more out, then drew a little bit more out, and what became apparent was this student had just been through something tragic. And they weren't looking for a philosophical punch-up. They, actually, they were needing to feel heard. And John just had the, the wisdom and the intuition to think, okay, there's a, there's a question, but there's probably something under the surface, and until I find out what that is... I'm not going to be able to respond in the, in the best way, so I'm going to try and fish out what's really going on here. That's what we need to do. Uh, we need to be people who listen well. So if I, if I meet someone for the first time and, and the, the issue of, of LGBT stuff comes up and they ask me a question, and I'm, I'm normally not going to try and give them an answer immediately. I'm normally going to try and find out why, what this issue means to them and, and why it means what it means to them. So if I meet a, a, a gay non-Christian, actually the first thing I want to do is, is just to hear their story. If they're comfortable sharing it, I, I want to hear their story. Because that will help me then get a sense of where I might need to begin in sharing Christ with them. If their stories involved a lot of hurt and pain, I might be thinking, okay, they, they really need to know that Christ is the one who will not break a bruised reed. Um, if there's someone who I'm, I'm sensing confusion over identity and, and, and an uncertainty about who they really are, I might think of the woman at the well and think, actually, they need to see that Jesus the one, is the one who actually shows us who we really are. But either way, even just the, the physical act of listening to someone, given how low a view many non-Christians have of Christians, people tend to think we hate them, even just the, the, the exercise of saying to someone, I'd, I'd love to just hear your story. Would you be willing? It would be such a privilege to hear it. I'm already showing them I'm not the kind of Christian they may have thought I was going to be. Um, it's, it's a form of hospitality. So that's the first thing. We need to be good listeners. Uh, the second thing is, is this. Don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. 
The, the perception among many of our non-Christian friends is that, that Christians single out certain groups for special condemnation. And frankly, there's some Christians who do that. And given the sensitivity around particular minority groups and, and messages that might be harmful, a good rule of thumb in the early stages of these kinds of conversations is don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. In other words, show how the gospel treats all of us the same. I find that really does reduce the heat in the room. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Um, we're speaking at a university once. A young lady came up to me afterwards and said, well, I'm, I'm a lesbian. What do you think about that? So I said, well, thank you, thanks for coming up and, and saying hi. It's, it's good to meet you. Um, by the way, what's your name? You know, let's, let's do some basic um, courtesies here. Um, I said to her, listen, it's interesting, but, but Jesus has some challenging things to say about sexuality to all of us. And she said, oh, oh well, what does he say? And I said, but he says we're all, we're all broken in this area of life. And we, we got chatting about that. Did I, did I talk about this last night? No, thank you. I've forgotten what I've said where over the last couple of days. Um, we ended up having quite a lengthy conversation about, about what Jesus says. I took her to the passage in Matthew 5 from, from last night. Now, I could have answered her question by saying, well, the Bible says you being a lesbian is a sin. That would not have been untrue, but it would have been so incomplete as probably to have been misleading. Because what she would have heard was, you, you are a sinner. You are in a special category of, of evil in, in the eyes of Christianity. And she would have felt got at, she would have felt singled out, she would have felt... I'm sure, as though she was being looked down on and, and judged and condemned. And so what I was trying to show her was something of how the message of Jesus lands on all of us. So that when in time she comes to see how the message of Jesus lands on her, she's not being given an unfair deal. But she needed that wider framework to be clear in place. Um, another young student I met once was a, a guy who said to me um, that he was... He was not a Christian, he was gay. He said he'd, he'd read my book, Is God Anti-Gay, twice. So I apologized to him for that. Um, but he was reading Mark's gospel, meeting up with a pastor to, to go through it, and attending a church small group. So I said, you, you're doing more Christian stuff than most Christians do. How come? What, what is drawing you to Christian things? And he said, well, I, I realized that Jesus treats me the same as everybody else. And I said, why is that so precious to you? And he said, because he was part of an LGBT advocacy group, and he said, the whole premise of the group was we're different. We need to be treated differently to everybody else. We're special. And he said he found it refreshing that as he read through Mark's gospel, Jesus was just putting him in the same boat as everybody else. And that's right. Jesus' message is repent and believe for all of us. And so particularly where there's heightened sensitivity, it is helpful to not say to someone what you can't say to everyone. It shows that we are in the same boat. I want people to know that I don't think they're a freak. But here's the thing with that. You can't say to someone, well, I don't think you're a freak. Because somehow saying that makes it sound like you probably should have thought they were a freak. And it has, has, ends up having the, the opposite effect. But the gospel does show us we're all in the, all in the same boat. 
I'm not going to pretend to know what it feels like to be someone else or to know what they've experienced. But I am going to let them know that actually Jesus treats us the same. Uh, The next thing is we need to show people the goodness of God. Um, I was at one of my dear friends back in the UK. I was at his his house. This was a couple of years ago. His, His daughter was about... I think three years old at the time, maybe two, and living up to every stereotype you have of what a two-slash-three-year-old is, is going to be like at a mealtime. And uh, meals could sometimes be a little tense um, with, with that particular child at that time of life. But my friend said to me, hey, um, last week she told us that spaghetti was her favorite food, so we thought, given you're here tonight, we'll make spaghetti so that, you know, it's a straightforward meal. Anyway, spaghetti was served. Spaghetti was rejected. <laughs> she did not want spaghetti. And my friend was beside himself. He's like, but, but you told me this was, this was your favorite thing. You told me that last week that this was your favorite food. And we've made you your favorite food. And she said something to the effect of, well, I, I reserve the right without prior notification to change my mind as to what is, an, is not acceptable <laughs> food to be served. I'm putting it in my own words. But that was, that was the gist. Um, she's, she's, she's delightful. I nickname her Kim Il Hannah because she just has that slight dictatorial kind of <laughs> quality to her sometimes at mealtime. She's a sweet girl when she's not refusing to eat every food that's put before her. But here's the thing. Uh, many of our, our non-Christian friends will think that God's attitude to same-sex relationships, say, is like that girl's attitude to, to spaghetti. God's just randomly decided that he de- he's just decided not to like it, and it's all arbitrary. Um, anyone who, who kind of has a, a, a passing browse through Leviticus might think God is like that. God just randomly decides there are certain things he's going to not like. And it can feel very haphazard. And so we need to show people not just what the Bible says, but why the Bible says it, that there's a rationality to what God calls us to do. So here's here's another principle for us related to this, is whenever we see a negative in the Bible, a thou shalt not, a good question to ask ourselves is, what, what positive thing is this negative teaching protecting for us? Uh, somebody once said, don't remove a fence until you found out what it was put there for in the first place. What is the positive behind the negative? What good thing does this prohibition retain for us? So when the Bible says do not lie, it's because there's something life-giving and beautiful about truth. So what is the positive vision of human sexuality that accounts for some of the negative prohibitions that the Bible gives us along the way? Mere rebuttal is not persuasion. Just saying to someone you think they're wrong isn't going to persuade them to become a Christian. You've actually got to show them something better. And people are not going to care if what we say is true if they don't believe it's good. Um, One younger Christian I was involved with, with discipling he was experiencing same-sex attraction and, and seeking to, to honour the teachings of Jesus. 
And he said to me once that a key turning point for him was he realized God never says no to something without saying a much bigger yes to something else. And it was only when he began to see what God was inviting him into that it helped him to then say no in his heart to some of the things that God was prohibiting. So we need to have a positive message and not merely a negative message. There was a, 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 a TV comedy in the, the UK years ago called Little Britain. I think it's being banned now because of various things that were in it. I don't know if that ever made it over here. Have you guys heard of Little Britain? One of the recurring characters was this... Um, a woman who was always at a computer at a sort of a, a help desk. And whatever the scenario was, whatever the context was, someone would be coming up to her and, and so saying, is it possible to, to change this or to order one of these or to kind of sort out this? And she would just sort of stare blankly at the screen, type for a long time, for ages, and then just not even looking at the other person go, computer says no. And that was the gag. I mean, it was just, this is high culture. Um, <laughs> And whatever the scenario was, every episode, she would turn up at some point and just say, computer says no, and that's it. And sometimes our, our teaching on this sounds a bit like all we're saying is Bible says no, as if that's the sum total of our, our message to our LGBT friends. So we need to show people the goodness of God and to show people the positives behind the negatives, which leads to the next thing. We need to answer narrative with narrative. What has changed people's minds on issues like same-sex marriage, gay rights, and so on, is hearing narratives. Most of our, our friends who've, who've kind of shifted on this issue over the last 10 or 15 years haven't shifted because they've read tons of books about ethical reasoning and, and all the rest of it. They've shifted because we, we keep hearing the same story again and again of someone who was in the closet, who came out, owned their sexuality, was true to themselves, met someone lived out their, their identity and lived happily ever after. And you, you keep hearing the same narrative on repeat and it, it shifts your moral understanding. And to simply reply to that narrative with a set of rebuttals isn't going to persuade someone. And so part of what we need to do is to, is to answer some of the narratives of our, our culture with narratives of our own and to say, actually, the church has some great stories too. Here are some stories of people who are becoming aware of their sexual brokenness and tasting the goodness of Jesus and finding life and fullness through following his teaching. Uh, we need to share those stories. And wonderfully, God is giving us more and more of those stories in the church today. Some of them will be in our own congregations and there'll be Christians who can give testimony to the goodness of Jesus in this area of their life. Um, there are others. I've, I've asked for them to put Rachel Gilson's book, Born Again This Way, um, on the, the bookstall, Rachel was a, a non-Christian lesbian. I think she was at Yale. And she, she came to faith. She, actually, she came to faith because she stole a copy of Mere Christianity. <laughs> she was beginning to kind of search spiritually. She saw this book on someone's shelf called Mere Christianity. had no idea who C.S. Lewis was or who this, this book was. She just thought the title was, okay, that, I think that's something I need to read. Stole it when the other person wasn't looking. Read it and, and came to faith. But her story of how she's come to see the goodness of Jesus, or Jackie Hill Perry's book, Gay Girl, Good God. I did get that the right way around. I sometimes, <laughs> that book in my mind sometimes turns into Good Girl, Gay God, and that's, that's a very different book. <laughs> um, 
again, telling her story of, of, of coming to, to terms with her sexuality and, and embracing the teaching of the Bible. Or Beckett Cook, a book called A Change of Affection. There are some wonderful stories out there. The website, livingout.org, has some video testimonies of various Christians, again, finding life and, and richness through the teachings of Jesus. So we need to show the world around us that the church has the best stories. Because again, it's going to be narrative that helps to shape people's understanding of this issue. Uh, we need to find the testimonies among the people of God and, and have those testimonies encourage all of us. But that's not the only narrative that we, we have to respond with. I mentioned yesterday how the whole Bible shows us the story of God pursuing a bride. We need to go into that narrative as well. Because we're, we're seeing in that narrative the positive biblical vision for human sexuality. That the Bible begins with a marriage. Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. The Bible ends with a marriage. Christ and the church at the end of the book of Revelation. The first marriage becomes a movie trailer for the second one. And it begins to explain to us why Christian marriage has the particular shape that it does. Why Christian marriage is between a man and a woman because... A man and a man or a woman and a woman can't show us Christ and the church. Uh, the Bible shows us why it's, it's covenantal, because it's, it's God making promises he will not break. Irrespective of, of how good or bad a day we are having, God covenants his love to us. Marriage is covenantal to reflect that. It's why Christians believe that, that Christians should marry other Christians and not outside the faith. All of these things are because of that ultimate purpose of marriage to point beyond itself to Christ and the church. Now, one of the mistakes we often make is we mistake the model for the reality. And God has given us human marriage as a, as a picture of the ultimate reality of life with Christ. And we mistake the model for the thing that it's pointing to. Um, you may remember... The first movie, Zoolander, I may alienate half of you immediately with this, um, the cultural artifact that is Zoolander. Uh, if you've not seen it, the movie is, is um, about a male model, and the premise of the movie is that the more good-looking you are, the more stupid you are. <laughs> I find, personally find that quite offensive. Um, <laughs> didn't have to laugh that much. <laughs> But anyway, there's a scene in the movie where a, a bunch of the main character is Derek Zoolander. He's very good-looking and therefore very stupid. And some people are, are going to build a school in his name. And so they invite him. They, they've got this architect's model of the school set up on a, on a table for him to see. And this is what it's going to look like. So they invite him and he looks at this model. It's all there with all the details. It looks amazing. And he looks at it and he's furious. And I can hear some of you doing the line in your head. Um, he says, is this a school for ants? <laughs> he says, it needs to be at least three times bigger, if I got the line right. Uh, if you've not seen this movie, you really need to. It's, it's probably deeply unchristian in lots of ways. But um, <laughs> he says, it needs to be at least three times bigger than this. And the, 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 stu the stupidity of the scene is he's mistaken the model for the reality. And every time we think romantic fulfillment is going to be the thing that completes us, we do the same thing. When we think marriage is going to be the thing that makes us ultimately happy, we do the same thing. 
because we've lost touch with that, that wider narrative of what marriage is designed to point ahead to. Um, I was doing the, the wedding of a young couple at my church um, a couple of years ago. Really lovely young couple, and they invited me to, to officiate and do the sermon. I was, I, was, I was thrilled too. I gave them the vows to read to each other. Um, but I, I felt led to say to them during the, during the sermon, you know, that they were young and idealistic and, you know, enjoying their, their wedding day. Great. But I said to them, listen, if at some point you find your marriage disappoints you, please bear in mind that's because it's supposed to. It's, it's designed to not be the thing that fulfills you. It's designed to be the thing that points to where you will find fulfillment. This marriage is, is just the temporal signpost of where the real action is found, which is the marriage that we have in Jesus. And if we have that perspective, it enables us to, to honor marriage and to dignify marriage. It has that unique role of pointing beyond itself but in a way that means we won't idolize it or worship it. It also means that we'll be able to honor singleness within the church because we'll recognize if, if ultimate reality is, is finding that relationship with Jesus Christ, then, then not being married in this life is not missing out on something that is fundamental or something that is essential. It's a great gift for those who receive it, but we also see in the, in the same scripture that tells us marriage is a good gift that singleness is a good gift too. And singleness also points ahead to that future reality because in the age to come, Jesus says none of us are going to be married. We will have the bridegroom. Why would we be married? And singleness is a way of saying that future state that all of us are going to be in is so good and so real that we can even live according to that state now. Jesus is enough. So we need to answer narrative with narrative, both at the personal level of, of Christians sharing their own stories of the goodness of Jesus in this part of life, but also in that bigger biblical narrative, because what you think about sex is actually going to be shaped by what is the story you think is ultimate in reality. And what we realize with, with Christianity and the, the biblical sexual ethic is that we're being swept up into a far grander story than anything our culture has for us. Uh, the next point we need to, to think through is we need to celebrate a Christian view of identity. Uh, the message of our culture is you are your sexuality. Those natural feelings that you experience, that, that is the real you. That is you at your most you. And therefore, you can't fully be you unless you are fulfilling and expressing those sexual feelings. You can't be complete unless that's happening. That is profoundly bad news. It may feel in instinctively and intuitively right to many people today. It is profoundly bad news because... It's bad news for those who are feeling like they're not fulfilling their sexuality. It's bad news for them because it's saying to them, listen, the best thing in life is passing you by. Your one real shot at being fully and authentically yourself 
you're missing out on. And the best of life is, is passing you by. And it's only a few short and very tragic steps from someone hearing you are your sexuality to thinking that a life without sexual fulfillment is a life that's not worth living. It's a view of identity and a view of fulfillment, my friends, that has a body count. And so when, when secular friends say to me that, you know, your Christian sexual ethic is, is causing harm and anxiety and evil, even suicidal ideation to, to young people, part of me wants to say, actually, we're not the ones making sex the be-all and end-all here. That's never been the message of the church. That is not the message of Jesus Christ. We're not the ones saying, this is the thing that is going to make your life real and full and complete. You guys are. And you're crushing people by doing so because you're saying to a 14-year-old, listen, if this part of your life isn't going amazingly well, your life is a failure. But it's also bad news for, feel, for those who feel as though their sexuality is being fulfilled because there will be some folks out there having exactly the kind of sex they want to have with exactly the kind of person they want to have it. And the, the world's message to them is, this is as good as it gets. This is it. And it's just not that great. And so what is liberating in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the most fully human and complete person who ever lived, who ever walked the face of the earth, was never married was never romantically involved and, and never had sex. And so we cannot say that any of those things is essential for human fulfillment without saying that Jesus himself was subhuman. If we say that marriage is essential for being fully human, if we say sexual self-expression or fulfillment is, is essential for being whole and complete, we're saying that Jesus was not complete. We're saying he wasn't fully human. So the great thing Jesus does is he doesn't just show us where the boundary is of, of what is morally acceptable in terms of sexual behavior. Jesus also shows us it's not sexual behavior that is going to show us where to find fullness in life. He dethrones it and shows us that it's found somewhere else. And therefore we don't need to, to, to invest our deepest sense of identity in our sexuality. Here's the final thing, and then we're going to have a break, and I want us to have lots of time for, for Q&A. I've forgotten what number we're on by now, but we need to expect the gospel to be powerful. Um, I want to share some verses from, from Romans chapter 1, if you want to have that to hand. Uh, not the part of Romans 1 you might be thinking we would turn to in a conversation about sexuality, but actually the, an earlier part of the chapter because something's going on in the first part of Romans 1 that I find just deeply encourages me. However sort of daunted I might feel about some of the cultural challenges that we find ourselves amongst, um, 
there's strength and encouragement in these verses. I'm going to read from verse 8. And as we, as we read through these verses, it becomes apparent that the Christians in Rome seemed to think that Paul was reluctant to come. And that would be understandable from their point of view because this is Rome. Yeah, Paul's been out there in the, in the boondogs, he's been out there in the, in the kind of far-flung regions, and his, his shtick seems to work out there. But this is Rome, this is where sophistication is, this is where cultural power is, this is where... This is the heart of the empire. So no wonder we've not seen Paul in Rome. Uh, the Christians in Rome seem to be intimidated by the culture in which they found themselves, and so they were thinking, well, I guess Paul is too. So with that in mind, listen to what Paul says, and what he's saying here is, is quite deliberate. So he says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That's, that's standard for Paul. I love that. Paul's reflex when he hears about other Christians is just to thank God for them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is saying, we all know about you Christians in Rome and we all recognize that you guys are legit. We know about your faith. Everyone knows there are Christians in Rome. And so we thank God for you. Verse 9, for God is my witness. And now that's, that's, that's a very solemn thing to say. That's something you say if you're kind of, in a, you know, this, this is, I'm going on the record here. This is suddenly becoming very formal. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul will often tell his readers that he always prays for them. But in this case, Paul is saying, not only I want you guys to know that I always pray for you, but actually I'm saying, God's my witness that I'm always praying for you. Something, something else is going on here that they need to know. Because of what it is Paul is praying for. He says, God is my witness that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So it's not just I'm always praying for you guys, but I'm always praying that I can come and you can ask God. God is my witness. God can tell you how many times I've prayed that I would make it to Rome, that the way would be open for me to come to you. Okay, I'm, I'm just spamming the inbox of heaven asking to get to Rome. Paul wants them to know that. They, they don't think that. Paul needs them to know that. Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul is saying, I'm desperate to get to Rome because you guys need strengthening. You're not there yet. You're legit Christians, but you're, you're weak in some areas where you really need to be strengthened. I'm, I'm planning to come in order to give you some spiritual strength. That is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I, I love verse 12. Paul is writing to younger, weaker Christians, but he is still assuming there's going to be something mutual that goes on when he spends time with them. In fact, he, he shows us that three times, that we may be mutually encouraged. It's not just going to be Paul giving them strength and, and teaching them, but his time with them is, is going to encourage him as well. 
mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So however long the Lord gives us as, as Christians, however much we grow in Christ, however much maturity we get to, let's never be the kind of Christian that isn't encouraged and learning something, even from the newest Christians that we come across. Even the Apostle Paul was assuming he could be encouraged by younger Christians. Verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Okay, Paul is saying, you guys need to know, I've tried to get to you. Okay, I've, I've booked tickets, I've booked flights, I've booked ferries, and I've, it's just, it's never been able to happen up until now. I've been prevented. You know, Vesuvius erupted and all the planes were grounded. There was the ferry strike and I lost my ticket on that one. I can show you the receipts. I've tried many times to get to you. Why? Verse 13, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. See what Paul is saying? I've been trying to get to you. You need strengthening and... I want to get to you because I want to see a harvest in Rome among you guys as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. In other words, I'm expecting the same kind of harvest there as I see everywhere else. You're not that special. Verse 14, and again, Paul's language is very specific and very deliberate. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. Rome was proud of its, the ways it had been influenced by Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek thinking. They were the sophisticated ones, everyone else was barbarians. Paul is saying, I'm as obligated to the Greeks as I am to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I owe the gospel to this culturally elite group in Rome just as much as I owe the gospel to anybody else. So, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I can't wait. There's no reluctance from Paul. There's no nervousness from Paul. There's just eagerness and determination. Because, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel when I'm, when I'm out here in the provinces. I'm not ashamed of the gospel when I'm in Turkey. I'm not ashamed of the gospel when I'm in the land of Israel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel when I'm in Rome. Because wherever we are, the gospel is always the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. It is no less the power of God for salvation when you're speaking to people who are self-important in Rome. You don't need to be intimidated by them because the gospel still has the power to save them. And for those of us who may feel intimidated by the cultural times in which we live, intimidated even perhaps by LGBT friends around us, we need to remember that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Whatever their demographic, whatever their self-identity, whatever their posture, whatever their, their tone, whatever they think of us, whatever they think of Christianity, it takes no more grace 
for God to save the most aggressive gay rights activist than it takes him to save anyone else. And as God looks from his throne at this cultural moment, God is not chewing off his fingernails in anxiety going, well, I kind of knew what I was dealing with up until now, but this is, this is a whole new thing. I, I don't know what to do. No, the gospel is still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is good for us to be humbled by the cultural challenges around us. It is not good for us to be paralyzed. It is good for us to think, I need to work hard at understanding my neighbor. I really want to understand where they're coming from and, and think through how I can, I can proclaim Christ as, as well as I can. But we do so because our confidence is in the power of the gospel itself. And so our, our role within the church, and particularly for those of us who are church leaders, our role is, is not to hold the line. Our role is to reap a harvest. Friends, the Lord means for there to be a harvest among our LGBT friends. And the gospel is the power of God for some of those precious people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of living in a time and place where, where we get to be the ones who share Jesus in this kind of context. Um, let me pray for us. Another, maybe a five-minute leg stretch and then we'll, we'll head into some Q&A. Let's just pray for a moment. Our Father, as we think of the, the gospel being the power of God for salvation, we, we want to thank you for the work of that power in our own lives. Father, the fact that any one of us in this room as a follower of Jesus Christ is because of your power and your grace and your mercy. It is not because we were somehow closer to being a Christian than anybody else. It is simply because of your free grace and mercy. And Father, we pray that that same power will be manifested around us in these days. Not just with our LGBT friends, Lord, but with, with all the people that we interact with, with all the people you've placed around us, that we would see the gospel bearing fruit, that we would see a harvest in our own times. And so that we pray you'd help us as, as your people to be those who embody grace and truth, those who have wise and thoughtful words to say, those who speak with something of the tone and fragrance of Jesus himself, those who reflect the very heart of the one who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Father, we, we pray these things because we long that Jesus would be known. Father, we pray that we would be living in a time where there is a historic coming to Christ in this part of the world. Not because we want to be where the action is, not because we want to sort of try and claim any credit for anything, but because we long to see our precious friends and neighbours enjoying the sweetness of knowing Jesus. 
And we pray, Father, that you might use us in that enterprise. We don't deserve that. We're not qualified for it. But you choose to use broken vessels to reach this world, and we want to be available. So help us to be people who pray earnestly and who love our neighbors well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.